As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're listening to the Wild 7 Podcast Network. Listen different. You know how mothers always say, don't play with your food? Yeah, well, they need to update that phrase and say, don't have any relationships with your food. Bob Brick has a problem. Uh, well, it all started with Sammy. I uh, met him on my lunch break. And who's Sammy? Uh, he was a sandwich. A sandwich? You know, I, I was about to take the first bite, and then next thing I know... The sandwich, he, he said, before you eat me, consider this. My name's Sammy, and I'd like to have a conversation with you. And I learned more about life sitting with that sandwich than I ever did in all my years of schooling. But, you know, I only get a half hour for my lunch, and I started to get very hungry. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying on the conversation, but while eating him. Well, of course, obviously. Ah, uh, yeah, that was that was hard. I I had made a friend in one sitting, and then uh, after that last bite, licking my fingers with that mayonnaise, Sammy was dead. I'm so sorry, Sammy. <laughs> it started with just one sandwich, but soon it escalated into a continuing issue. The next thing Bob knew, he was having relations and friendships with every meal he ate. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, it's tough when you're trying to enjoy a meal and it's introducing itself to you. I've eaten a couple of Carols, a couple of Marys, a couple of Phillips and Toms and Davids. You don't want to find yourself with a bunch of grapes when you have what I have, because that's like murdering an entire city. Eventually, Bob Brick sought professional help. I have worked with Mr. Brick for three years now, and my method has been to simply state the harsh reality without any of sugar coating. And as you and I might imagine, 
to sugarcoat anything for Mr. Brick would only complicate things further. Give me back my son! Calm yourself, Mr. Brick. I want my son! That is not your son, that is a potato. It was hard work, but after three years, Bob Brick states that he has made progress. I'm totally normal now, I, I can eat a meal without having any problem. And if I were to offer you, say, this cookie, oh, then I'd have to say no, because I'm a married man. A married man? To whom? Gentlemen, there's something that I have been keeping from you up until this moment. I wanted to make sure we had a full crew here before I show you. But it's not so much that I have stopped talking to my meals, I just didn't eat them anymore because I couldn't stand killing so many innocent lives. And so I hid my meals, plate after plate, inside this closet. And when I open that door, I'm going to show you the most beautiful lady who has ever loved me or will ever love me. Honey, come on out. Isn't she beautiful? Come here, honey. Give me a big, wet, sloppy kiss. Okay, okay. Get, get those cameras off. Someone call someone. More than the police. We, we, we need more. Call, call anybody. Oh my god. In the words of Alex Rogers. Episode 28, They Know That Monster. Oh, hey there, mister. What you doing getting off the train here? I didn't get no telegram. And I always get a telegram telling me when someone's coming into town here. No, I never get no telegram, then therefore it doesn't make sense that you're coming into town here. And I always know what's happening coming into town here, and I don't know about you, so you better tell me what you're doing in town here. Yee-hoo, Welcome to town. To the audio town, ladies and gentlemen. This is Alex Rogers. Recording and reporting. From a timeless zone in which your listening is the now. Settle in, deep breath, calm yourself. And try not to fall asleep as I trick you into a state of Satori. No, I I do hope that you are finding yourself nice and cozy in this present moment. The now. The time in which we always find each other. Well, let's see. I hope you all are breathing well. I hope you all are walking well. I hope you have been finding in your own comfort and time how you are negotiating mask culture right now. Um, 
I know I alluded to the end of last episode that I had started to unmask a little bit here. Unmask! 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 Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, I, uh, so I've mentioned numerous times I work at a grocery store, and, uh, the current, uh, practice is that, uh, as long as everyone's double-vaxxed and feeling cozy, you can take your mask off. And I did that for a couple of days. Excuse this farting sound out there, it's just the flatulent stretch of a motor vehicle. Um, nice job, boys. Well, we're not going to go back and try to record that because, let's face it, every second of the show is not, shall we say, sacrosanct. Um, but no, I started to take off my mask, and I gave it about two or three days. And it was a, a very interesting experience to, uh, first of all, I did not expect to be one of the first few at work. I waited for a couple of gals I work with who are super cool, and I view them as, uh, if they're doing it, then it's safe for everyone to do it. You know, I'm a bit of a lost boy in this world, and before I do what other lost boys are doing, I like to see if Wendy is doing it too. And if Wendy does it before Peter Pan and the lost boys, then I, as a perpetual lost boy, am more prone to do it. So a couple of Wendy's amongst our group uh, took their masks off, and uh, I felt like, you know what, I can do that too. And man, that first day, it felt very strange not having a mask. It's almost like uh, you had some uh, organ hanging out that people would find objectionable, perhaps. Oh my god, he's showing his nose! Uh, sir, your mouth is hanging open. Oh, sorry, I'll close it up. Nah, I can still see your mouth. Yeah, I felt very, um, I felt very uh, exposed. Like I had forgotten something, or I was being just utterly depraved. Uh... But then I started smiling again to people, and I started to feel kind of like, you know what? I'm going to just make sure, because y'all have heard me in plenty of episodes making fun of what I perceive to sometimes be kind of a vacant, dumb look when you have the mask off now. And it's like, hey, come on now. Come on. If you're going to show the face, let's, uh, let's be present now. And I understand. Sometimes being present means... Uh, you're not putting on a face, and, and some asshole like me will look at that and go, you fucking vacant mind, when of course that mind is simply going, Aum, shanti, 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 Aum. So, who the hell am I? Know what I mean? So yeah, I went about two or three days of not wearing the mask, and I started to feel more and more comfortable. And I put it back on, and the only reason is that uh, I, I, I'm afraid, you know, you, you, you say one suggestion my way and enough people follow, then I'll be the lemming who jumps off that cliff. And uh, there's this Delta strain going around. Delta. Isn't that funny? That's a word. It's a letter, actually. It's a Greek letter. And uh, it's always getting... Uh, wrapped up in big deals. I don't think Delta has ever had a, a day off. Delta gets used up. That's First of all, it's an airline. And, and you know, that, that, that's got to be exhausting as is. It also, I know, is a recurring image for change. It's a triangle. I mean, for, for gosh sake, Delta is a triangle. I mean, that's a, that, when, does, when does triangle ever get vacation time? And then, on top of that, I'm sure it's been used in brotherhood, uh, orgiastic secrecy stuff. 
the Delta this or and, and you hear it in war lingo down there on the Delta or even in like uh, I want to say just kind of like areas of, of old Western lore down there by the River Delta. I think also it's been used in various mathematical equations, delta T, delta C, delta B, whatever the fuck. Why ever that is used, I'm sure it has some sort of triangulation effect. I don't know. I'm not a mathematician. I had to repeat Algebra 2. And some of you are saying, I had to repeat Algebra 1. And I won't even repeat that because repeating that makes me repeat it again. <laughs> but now there's a delta strain, apparently, which is what they're calling this variant that might be out there. Because, you know... COVID ain't just one version. COVID starts to get, you know, it's summer apparel. It's matching shoes to have that fall look. It just got the matching bracelet and handbag that's going to take it into the winter formal. And, and that handbag is the shape of a triangle slung over its spiky shoulder. The Delta. So there you go. There's a Delta strain that might be out there. And why risk it? And so I put the mask back on. Now, out here, it's hot as fuck, and it's that time of year that I don't enjoy. Boy, and I'm going to eat my words about complaining about the weather, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to be good today, but boy, the, uh, the weather has been not my favorite. It's that time of year where it gets fucking hot, and, and, and I don't understand. I look at some people, and they're wearing all black, and they're not sweating. How do you do that? I'll wear all white, and the minute I step outside, I'm drenched. But anyway, the mask has been put back on these days, and uh, it's all good by me. Hell, that's just a second face now. Started with that surgical mask, that creepy mask where you come into the ER and I walk up to you and I'm like, There's absolutely nothing to worry about. And uh, the problem with that surgical sort of uh, blue-whitish mask is that uh, for me at least? Because I did establish I can get I can be a sweaty motherfucker. Uh, it just doesn't look good when you have a, a, a mask that's starting to kind of uh, uh, seep out and get stuck to your face in various splotchy wet parts. Especially when you're trying to show some ladies some good eyebrow action. Because let's face it, with the mask on, you know you got to work with what's up there. Got to show them eyes and show them brows. Just doesn't look good when you have a bunch of, when, a, a big wet cloth underneath that. So I changed to the black ninja look. Got that little black mask there now. Now it looks like I can be more like, Miss April O'Neil, a message. Shut it. For those of you who remember the 1990 film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, then dun, 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 dun. thank you for understanding me. So we're back to the mask for now, but boy, it's all right. It's fine. Notice how it didn't ruin me. I, 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 those were some nice liberating days, working without a mask. And then I put it back on. And not everyone has put their mask back on. Some people have remained maskless, and some people have yet to demask. It is a personal choice at this point. And I just hope all of you out there aren't feeling rushed or bullied or pressured into any kind of masking or unmasking at this point in the game. But I do hope you're taking care of yourselves. I hope you've done what you can to reduce your risk and therefore the risk, and therefore to reduce the risk of others. Some fun stuff of late. I read Quentin Tarantino's newest book. The novel, 
of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I'm here to say, it's fucking great. It's a blast. I think anybody can get into it. I think even the most um, staunch of critics who weren't fans of things that get really nutty violent in the vein of Kill Bill or Reservoir Dogs or uh, Hateful Eight, things that can get pretty brutal. Um, This is a really well done novel that I think anyone can get into. It's a page turner, and not cheaply so. It's, it, it, he knows how to entertain. And entertain is no glib word. There, sometimes, I know for me, I run the risk if, if I hear someone say entertainment, I, I get a little cynical and I'm like, what do you mean? Like a bunch of distractions that's cheap, but due to the low brow of those who are into it, it passes as good. Uh, but, you know, that's my own drama to unravel throughout my life. But, yeah, uh, no, entertainment is a simple um, recipe that, like any good soup, can be enjoyed by anybody. And uh, it's, a, I, I've, I mean, I, I, how do I say things that haven't already been said? It is a love letter to a late 60s Hollywood. But here's the part that, I'm not sure if people are talking about yet. And I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'll do my best not to spoil anything here, but it, it's something that you'll actually, if you're familiar with the movie, will notice in the first few pages. This is a novel. It's not necessarily a novelization of the movie in the sense of, let's say, some novelizations of movies are basically a play-by-play narrative retelling of the shooting script, meaning the story you saw beat for beat on the screen will sometimes basically be transcribed directly to book form. But what Quentin did, and what he reveals talking about it in all these cool interviews he's been on, and man, when you listen to Quentin, I'm the guy, when, all right, when I listen to him talking about things he likes, okay, and when I hear him go on and on, all right, and talk about things that fucking blow your mind, okay, I get fucking fired up, and I want to do things like him, and I haven't changed my opinion about Quentin one iota. But it's undeniable his love for legendary names and also, of course, legendary names that are unsung. Not obvious names that even the most casual of film historian might pick up on, like Charles Bronson or Lee Marvin, but names that I didn't know about, like Aldo Ray and... Um, Who's the, who's the problematic actor that Timothy Oliphant plays in the movie? Jim Stacy. James Stacy. Yeah, these like these old TV and movie actors from back in the day that uh, I didn't know about. And the novel goes much deeper into kind of like that little spatial web of different players in the whole Hollywood scene at that time, in the sea change of time. But back to the main point, which is this is a novel following, in a way, an entirely different focus and direction than what the movie does. And uh, what Quentin's been reminding us of in a lot of these interviews is that, you know, some of these novelizations 
are so different from the movie because th- sometimes they're based on a first draft script. I guess someone from the office sends to that writer, hey, they're going to be making this movie and to help the promotion of this, you need to write the novelization and this is basically the gist of it. But what ends up being written is not what's going to also be in the movie. And I got to say, I really admire Quentin making that choice. Again, I'm, not, I'm going to do my best not to spoil the movie if, if you haven't seen it or the book if you haven't read it yet. But let's put it this way. You know, he's, you know, even just casually, that the world he's playing with is a world that does exist, 1969, Hollywood, California. But because, of course, he's already made these two characters, played by Leonardo, 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 Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, as actor and stuntman, respectively, the these guys didn't actually exist but they walk through a world that did and then of course a movie doesn't actually exist but there's now a move a novel of events that happen in a movie in which neither the movie nor the novel ever actually existed now it's okay if you got lost on that because i was the first and I don't even dare try to go back and try to make sense of what I was trying to say. But the point is, the movie ha- works so well as a movie that even I am, am a bit married to how it eventually goes. Like, the, the whole thrust of that film has such an, a rewarding payoff by its third act. I, knowing I was going into a novel, not a movie, a novel, was almost expecting a direct transcript of the movie but truthfully though that that would be kind of lazy wouldn't it anyone could do that hey i i I mean i guess they could but even if you write it very well i i think we'd all feel a little like well then what was the point why would i just read a sort of direct transcript of a movie that i could either watch I mean, I can already hear Quentin and his voice right now being like, okay, if you want the, the what happened in the movie, all right, watch the fucking movie, all right? Just watch the fucking movie. But what I gave you right here is a fucking novel. That's a different thing. So, exactly. It's a different beast. And he worked with, I believe, the actual playground structure that a novel requires, not a movie. I mean, that's why it's very clear that the cover says, and by the way, the cover is so great, he made it look like it was published in the late 70s about events in the late 60s. It just has that cool paperback novel feel that you would see in like a spinning rack, um, either, you know, normally so back in the day, or sort of vintagely so if you go into bookstores nowadays. But Obviously, because this is Quentin, he's making sure that the novel, you know, gives you that feel that you're not just reading something that just got published today. It actually that the novel itself has antiquity all over it. And that's why on the cover, it says once upon a time in Hollywood, a novel by Quentin Tarantino, a novel. See, I, I, When I read novels, I do like to sort of imagine the images in my mind in a cinematic way. But the more you read novels, they don't move necessarily with that same scene-by-scene progression 
as a movie does. In fact, you'll one thing that I noticed about this is there are some scenes directly from the movie, but from a completely different perspective, from a tertiary character in the scene, having their own little inner observations and opinions about the more important characters who are talking in the scene. That That's not necessarily what's happening in the movie. So what I'm excited about is now we have a quality film and a quality novel, both with their own flavors and directions by the same guy. And I consider moments like these next to free outside of the purchasing of said items uh, lessons on how to do two different genres very well. So after reading this, which is just, it's full of so many great references to great movies, uh, especially leading up to the 60s. And you know something? I, I, I've always been into vintage, but I'll be the first to admit that if it's before the revolutionary period of the 1960s, meaning Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, uh, when when movies are the 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 Dirty Dozen, the Wild Bunch, when movies are starting to make kind of a shift into like really good, in my opinion, um, I, I never really was into the stuff before that, and I'll I, I and I think I've talked about it before. I I do have a bit of a prejudice against something that is in black and white, because I just sort of figure that with that image comes a time period where not only the acting style is just kind of ridiculous compared to today, but even everyone's sort of sensibility on how society works or how people even behave around each other is just laughably off. And there are plenty of examples that are like that because unfortunately in the 50s, I believe there were, I need to look into this more. I've heard about this term, the Hayes Code. Basically something that uh, makes sure that your shit is watered down and, and hitting every moral box, even though we, the people, are completely full of sin, but God forbid we see a movie that helps us maybe look into it deeper. Something like that. And then in the 50s, I, I have a prejudice where I believe, oh yeah, the 50s, where everything's black and white and everything has that soundtrack and like everything kind of got leave it to beavered. You know, everything just got that kind of glossed over. Well, that is some silly, nonsensical judgment on my part. And something that we've all forgotten, I think, is that there are quality films in that time that are in black and white, and they use the black and white formula very intelligently. And, and you know, because that was, while that may have been a limit at the time, there were directors who knew that they were working with black and white. In fact, when color started to become more popular, there were some directors who said, no, I'm sticking with black and white because this is a game of two different worlds that you play with throughout the whole picture. And um, anyway, beyond the classic black and white work, I'd say for one of the big examples, and, and it's talked about in the book of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a novel, uh, Akira Kurosawa. His films were 20 years ahead of their time in the 50s, and he uses black and white to where it's so lush, you almost feel like you're watching color. And then you have movies in the 50s by uh, some of the Hollywood, or at least the Western uh, movies, 
And I don't just mean cowboy westerns. I just mean the western part of the world where even though it's the 50s, you actually are using color. And recently, I've been really into that look. Um, I don't know what word I would use for it. Technicolor? Cinescope? I've seen these words kind of bandied about in the beginning credits of these movies, but just let's put it this way. A lot of those Hitchcock classics are actually, you know, his most famous scene is from a black and white movie, Psycho. But what we forget is before Psycho, his like four masterpieces that he made before Psycho, they're in the 50s and they're in lush color. Vertigo is psychedelic before people knew what psychedelia was, at least in the States. And uh, how about the birds? That's in lush color. Um, the Rear Window. That's a beautiful film. Again, in color. Well, I saw a movie that just delighted me. And I just before recording today, I watched it for a second time just to see, did I just watch a masterpiece? Yes, I did. I just saw a masterpiece. It's a film called Bad Day at Black Rock. And what a great title. It just, it just sounds like we're in for sort of like a grim, strange experience. Um, this is a film by John Sturgis. Now, this is the guy who directed The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. Those are like his big titles. And just a few years before making those movies, he does this strange little... And by the way, you know me. I love me a time-respecting running length of a movie. This sucker is an hour 21. Ooh! Dude, how cool is that? And it's a complete tale. And you still have time to pack a bowl, make a snack, hit the post office, and pick up the kids at the pool, and the whole thing. It, like, it's a good time-respecting feature. And uh, it's really good color in 1955. Let's put it this way. A really well-shot movie in the 50s that's in color looks like it was made anywhere in, like, even the late 60s. And that may not sound impressive to some, but that's impressive to me because I love the lush look of that color scheme that you see in the later 60s movies and when it when i see that it's done everywhere from 10 to 15 years prior you're like damn okay this is amazing this is an art here and our star in bad day at black rock is a classic actor that i must admit i didn't know too much about i've certainly seen a few classics by this guy but it's spencer tracy and even your grandkids have heard that name before, just kind of randomly in the shadows and hallways of mentionings and past things. But this guy is amazing. It, it's, you know, the, mo the movie is a good simple tale that I feel like every culture has. Every culture has this story where a town in the middle of nowhere is harboring a terrible secret, probably a homicidal or very sordid, dark secret of the like. And a stranger is going to come into town and poke around and stir up shit and violence will ensue. This is a very standard Western style. I'm sure it's also an Eastern style. 
as we also are finding out, any great Western movie usually took it from a great samurai flick. So (laughs) this has to be a universal tale. And Lord knows uh, there's another one. One of the Clint Eastwood movies that people don't talk about enough is one of his early directed movies, High Plains Drifter. Same idea. This town is guilty. Everyone is guilty of a murder. Some participated in the murder and others were just clam shut, not helping, didn't help out and have acted like nothing happened since. And a stranger is going to come into town and fuck your world up. Well, what's different about this movie is Spencer Tracy is already a bit of an old man. He looks amazing, by the way. This is a this is a hot, dried up, you know, nowheresville western town. Um, yeah, I mean, it's set in the fifties. It's not like the old west, but this town kind of wants to remain in the old west. It's a, it's a good old boy town, and you got uh, some some real hard hitting dudes. Two of them, great classics, Ernest Borgnine and Lee Marvin. They're like the heavies in the background. And this great actor from way back in the day, Robert Ryan, he's like the head, head dude. I always love the main guy who is way more charismatic. He's probably the most handsome of the bunch. And he knows how to kind of silver tongue talk his henchmen into doing some killings and some mischief for him. And meanwhile, he's kind of holding down the town. He may not be the strongest muscle, but he is public enemy number one. Like, yeah, this guy is great. Robert Ryan, another guy who I want to look into because he and Spencer Tracy are just phenomenal in this movie. And Spencer Tracy comes into town off of a train, this amazing opening sequence with this, like, bullet train either from hell or going to hell. But the point is, it's a stopover. Even the train conductor's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why why are you making a stop here? You want to be here? Nothing good is in Blackrock. So it's like a cursed town. What's more problematic than a problematic town? Maybe if the stranger who just showed up is even more problematic. And I, 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 you know, I'm just looking at what I see and I have my own little interpretations, but Spencer Tracy comes in in a black suit with a black fedora. He kind of looks like death dressed as a gentleman. Know what I mean? And it's a hot as fuck down. There's a line where someone says, it's hotter than Billy be darned. So it, it's fucking hot out there. And he's wearing an all-black suit with a black hat. One thing that I've noticed about Spencer Tracy, the guy has a very natural way of speaking, very engaging way of speaking, but the thing that is brilliant about him, you can't take your eyes off of him because his eyes aren't taking themselves off of anything else either. He notices so much. You see him just kind of observing the other actors, the environment. He's very good at kind of like picking up an object and doing something with it while he talks about it. Not all distracting like some of these showy actors who do it, but just a very... He'll he'll kind of snap his eyes up after hearing a bit of information and then just kind of ponder on what he just heard. And... He's, he's a man of shorter stature, and in that suit, he almost kind of looks like a gnome, but like a very shrewd gnome with these piercing eyes and a good sense of humor, because most of the time when the town is antagonizing him, because he comes into town to find out what happened to an old war buddy, 
And by the way, ain't just any war buddy. This is a, a Japanese friend of his who we're going to find out soon was definitely killed in a racist hate fest. And so he's going to come into town, find out what happened, and he'll probably exact some kind of justice. And he's a little more amused than he is uh, annoyed, per se, by the times when Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine and others are hassling him and saying crude shit to him. You kind of see him almost amused, like, yep, here we go. Yep, I've arrived in this town. Okay, well, I've certainly seen some shit, and it's... Man, you know, there's just something to be said about World War II, guys. Uh, it's something that I just don't think we understand. I don't certainly understand it, and I certainly try to. Just imagining that you just happen to be a generation that is called upon to see a monster that both sides of that dividing line saw. And... It's just a thought that came to mind that what if there was in some psychological way a monster that only those who served in big horror shows like World War II saw viscerally and they sometimes had to, especially back in this time, deal with it in deeply self-medicating alcoholic measures and just about everyone in this movie had some kind of interesting relationship to some kind of substance. I know certainly off the top of my head is Spencer Tracy and Lee Marvin. And Lee Marvin was a guy who saw the shit. I mean, I think he had, I think he has some kills on his hands. You know, a lot of, a lot of those old regalia actors, they weren't theater kids. They were, they were veterans of war who maybe then tried theater as a means to kind of, I don't know, deal with life a little bit. So some of them are, are deeply conflicted, heavily scarred men who, I don't know, just the image I see is that they know that monster. And sometimes they would show us what it's like being that monster and being around that monster in the films that followed shortly after World War II. I just I highly recommend it. Just it, it's a good, tense movie that's completely dialogue driven, and there is action. Oh, dude, I forgot to mention one last thing. Spencer Tracy, one of the great character givens, he can't use his left arm, and they didn't do something where it's like removed and they did like the short sleeve. No, no, he he just keeps that left hand in his pocket. It's like a lame arm, and. I gotta say, it's a perfect thing. It, it's just enough to show that he's almost concealing something or that there's just something to him that is just not there. And it adds to his mystery. And that capable arm, though, I'll just say this much. I've never seen a karate chop in anything earlier than the 60s, and I never thought I'd see some one-armed karate in a... Uh, neo-western from the mid-1950s. Bad day at Black Rock. Check the fuck out of it. I recommend. Well, stay cool out there, you cool cats. 
in all sense of the word. Let these times roll by and let yourself roll with them. And I hope you're having equal amounts of fun and calm out there. And we'll meet again very soon. In the mean in-between, thank you for your time. Thank you for your rhyme. In the Words of Alex Rogers is a podcast orbiting the mothership of Wild 7 Studios. Music by Inca Rose. Keep your ears open for storyscapes, Simpin After Dark, and other audio goodies from Wild 7. And keep your eyes open for its first feature-length film, Debbie and the Devil. <laughs>